Great, well, lovely to see you all here today. Thank you to our musicians again for leading us so well. And uh, it's lovely to think that as I get up here this morning, we have several other preachers in other locations, um, Bankery Christian Fellowship and uh, Dawnside. And then this afternoon, there will be Tory for, I think it's, this is its third ever meeting, Dougie, would that be right? Fourth at Hope Church. So uh, it's great to think of all these locations where the word is going out. And let's pray that God will speak in all these locations to all of our hearts. Please have your Bibles open. Um, 1 Samuel 6, um, a very unsettling passage, and rightly so. So uh, let's be unsettled together. Let me pray. Father, um, reveal to us this morning who you are, not who we think you are, nor who we might want you to be, but who you truly are, and help us to respond to you in a manner that is worthy of your glory and holiness and power. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, uh, there is a famous scene in the movie A Few Good Men, I don't know if you know the movie A Few Good Men, where Jack Nicholson, who plays a, a high-ranking colonel in the Marines, is being questioned by Tom Cruise, an enthusiastic lawyer, about how he leads his troops in Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. The Marines of Guantanamo Bay maintain a level of internal discipline that makes the rest of the military very nervous. And the Marines there argue that life is so extreme in their scenario, they're literally defending the country with their bodies, that they need to exercise extreme discipline. And so when news comes through that a Marine has died in Guantanamo during disciplinary procedures, an investigation is launched. And at the end of the movie, Tom Cruise is trying to get the truth about how the Marines exercised their discipline. And there's this great scene, confrontation between him and Jack Nicholson. And Cruz shouts out, I want the truth. And Nicholson replies, and if you've seen the movie, the image coming up will we'll speak to you. Jack Nicholson's got a lovely face, hasn't he? And Nicholson replies, you can't handle the truth. You can't handle the truth. It's become a famous line in movie history. You can't handle the truth. And that line sums up our passage this morning. In 1 Samuel 6, neither the Philistines nor God's own people could handle the truth of who God was. They refused to see the truth of who God was. They wouldn't acknowledge it or submit to it. They were not prepared for how glorious and holy and powerful God really is. And still today, a lot of people, Christians as well as non-Christians, can't handle the full reality of who God is. And we're going to examine this passage this morning to see why not, how we can learn the lessons, and how we ought to respond to God today. Now, the outline's going to be a little bit different this morning, so please follow. There's going to be a slightly different wording on the screen this morning, but the bulk of this passage takes place in verses 1 to 16, which is in the Philistine camp. And these verses teach us that the Philistines could not handle God. Why not? 
Well, you remember from chapter 5 that the Philistines placed the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of their god, Dagon, as a sign that they had conquered the God of Israel. They thought that they could control God. But of course, in chapter 5, God brought Dagon down and then systematically brought plagues on the five major cities of the Philistines, leaving the whole nation on its knees. Wherever the ark went, death and destruction followed. And we're told in verse 1 of chapter 6, the ark of the Lord was in the Philistine country seven months. So it took the Philistines seven whole months and a whole series of body bags to realize that they could not control God. He was too glorious and powerful for that. And so finally, in desperation, they called in their spiritual advisors. Verse 2 says, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? We can't cope. Dealing with God and the realities of the unseen spiritual world was too much for the regular leaders of the Philistines. They needed the advice of their priests. And for you and I this morning, have you realized that you can't control God either? But we try and do it, don't we? We try to use God for our own purposes. When we are in trouble, we offer a prayer to the God we have little or nothing to do with the rest of the time. We treat Him like the safety jacket under our seat that we only pull out in emergencies. But God is not a safety net. He's not a genie in the lamp. He is the King of the universe who demands our ultimate day-by-day -day allegiance. Christians aren't people who pop into church or throw up emergency prayers. They are men and women who have committed their entire lives to the Lord of glory. Is that how you would define your life this morning? So the Philistines began by trying to control the God of glory, but when they realized they couldn't control Him, then they tried to appease Him. Verse 3 the priest said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering, then you will be healed. So these spiritual advisors were keenly aware that the Philistines had offended this God of Israel. That's why plagues had, been brought, had brought the whole nation to their knees. So they couldn't just send the ark of the covenant back to Israel, they had to include a guilt offering. And so, in verse 4, they ask, what is the guilt offering that we should return to him? And the advisors answered, five gold tumors and five gold mice, according to the number of the Philistines. Now, these gold tumors and mice were a symbol of the plague that they had just experienced. <coughs> but sending mice and sending tumors as an offering was very, very strange. These weren't the sacrifices that God had prescribed for Israel to receive forgiveness of sins. The book of Leviticus said you had to slaughter an animal and offer that in place of the sinner to make the sinner right with God. So the Philistines, they were just guessing what kind of sacrifice God might accept. And often we do the same today. A lot of people today try to appease God in their own way. 
They realize that they have offended God and they need to to make amends. That is a good instinct to have. But you've got to ask the question, what is God looking for to make up for my sins? Most people say, well, if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, that will be good enough for God. So I might fiddle my tax returns, but I give money to cancer research. Surely that should balance the books. Others try to appease God by going down the religious ritual route. If I go to church enough, if I take communion enough, I will appease God in that way. The problem is we can't create our own way to be right with God. We need God to tell us how we can be forgiven. And the Scripture is very clear. A few good deeds can't cover up our load of sin before such a holy God. And religious ritual can't bridge the gap between us in our sin and God in His glory. God is a God of awesome glory and perfection. Romans 3 defines sin like this. It says, all have sinned by falling short of the glory of God. That's the target, the glory and full perfection of God. And every sin, even things that seem small to us, every sin is such an offense against God's glory that God tells us it deserves death. Adam and Eve just took a piece of fruit from a tree. You're out of here. The wages of sin is death. And that's why the death of an animal was the only way of bringing forgiveness in the Old Testament. But God Himself needs to set the terms for how He can forgive us. And He has made a way, the most amazing way imaginable, the death of His own Son to pay the price for sin. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the only sacrifice with enough grandeur and enough power to make sinners like you and me right with a God of such moral brilliance. Jesus is God's appointed way of salvation, and there is no other. Jesus alone has met the lofty demands of the glory of God because He is God. He alone can appease the wrath of God, the anger of God against your sin and mine. And the beauty of the gospel is when I simply trust in Jesus Christ, I am made utterly perfect and complete in God's sight, because nothing else will do, actually. And that gospel is the best news in the world. So, don't try your own attempts to make yourself right with God. They're flimsy by comparison to the gift of His Son, whom He has sent to us. So, the Philistines could not handle God in this passage. They tried to control Him. They realized they couldn't do that. Then they tried to appease Him, but their attempts at appeasement were misguided. Then they tried to test God. Did you notice that? Beautiful, beautifully written passage. There's huge irony here. In verses 7 to 9, the Philistines set up a scenario to see if God would do a miracle and prove to them that He was real. Now, you would have thought they had already received enough evidence of God's presence and power, but they wanted to keep their options open. 
you know, maybe all this sickness and death that they had experienced in the Philistine camp, maybe it was just bad luck. It wasn't God at all. And their plan to test God was ingenious. Verse 7 reads, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there was never a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart. Down to verse 9, if the cart goes up on the way to its own land, then it is God who has done this great harm to us. But if not, then we shall know that it is not His hand that has struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. It was just luck. Can you see what's going on here? The Philistines placed the ark on a cart pulled by two mother cows who are separated from their calves. The natural instinct of any mother cow is to go back to her calves. So if the cows didn't go back home, but instead they went straight down to Israel, the Philistines would know that God was real. But if the cows went back home, they would know that what happened to them was just chance. It was just coincidence. Bad things sometimes happen in a crazy random world. And they didn't need to deal with God at all. And of course, that's just what they wanted. They didn't want to deal with God at all. This was the test, which is pretty ironic in the context of this whole episode. Back in chapter 5, the ark brought the whole country to its knees. Plagues came to each new city where the ark was sent. And when the ark had been placed in the temple of their god Dagon, you'll remember, Dagon had mysteriously fallen from his perch twice, and the second time he had had his hand, head and his hands mysteriously removed. I mean, you had to be pretty deluded to think that all of this was just coincidence. Either deluded, or they just wanted to brush the idea of God under the carpet because it was just too problematic to deal with. And of course, we can do exactly the same today, can't we? We have plenty of evidence that God is real, but we just don't want to submit to Him. So we set up our own tests for Him in our lives. If He doesn't pass our test, then we're excused. We don't really need to believe in Him. We put God to the test all the time. I'm only going to believe in God if He does something clearly supernatural in my life right now to prove Himself to me. Now, people who say, I need to see something supernatural in my life, invariably, they're really looking for an excuse not to believe. Could that be you this morning? Maybe you're doing this as a Christian, you're testing God. God, you didn't heal my sister. You didn't save my friend. You didn't stop my dad from dying. I asked you for all those things. So I'm going to tone down my commitment to you. I'm going to show you how disappointed I am in you that you didn't prove yourself to me. We can put God to the test. And we can just dismiss all the ways that God has already proved himself to us the glory of the universe above us, the wonder of the conscience within us where we can tell the difference between right and wrong, 
the power of the Scriptures in front of us, which prophesied thousands of years in advance what Jesus was going to do. There's plenty of evidence for God if you're prepared to go where the evidence leads. And if God really did send His Son to die for you, and if Jesus really did rise again from the dead, He has already proved Himself to you in the most remarkable, vulnerable, and costly way. He's laid His body on the line for you, and He's waiting for you to repent and follow Him as your God and King, to lay your body on the line for Him, whatever that costs. However dangerous He is, however uncomfortable it is to follow this God of glory and power, perhaps it's time to stop testing God and start bowing before Him as your Lord and King. So, in this passage, the Philistines couldn't handle God. They tried to control Him, then they tried to appease Him, then they put Him to the test. And yet, despite their stuttering attempts, God gave the Philistines the sign that they wanted. Verse 12, it's a classic verse. The cows went straight to Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the left nor the right. I mean, what an amazing scene. The cows lowing suggests they were being guided against their wills by a higher power. And the Philistine leaders saw it all. They followed them. Look at verse 16. I think this is intriguing, we're told. The Philistines saw the cows welcomed back to Israel, and they… what did they do? They returned that day to Ekron. They just went back to Philistia. So, the Philistines saw the miracle that they were looking for. So, did they repent? Did they start worshiping Israel's God and said, guys, we need to change our ways here. We've just seen God in action. Well, we don't know, but the rest of Samuel would suggest that they just went back to life as normal. Ultimately, the Philistines just wanted rid of God, even though they knew, they saw with their own eyes, He was real and had great power, but He was just too dangerous. He was just too out of keeping with the kind of lives they wanted to live, the kind of culture they wanted to have in Philistia. So, they just pushed Him under the carpet. What about you and me? Do we just want to get rid of this whole subject of God? He's dangerous. He is holy and glorious and powerful. Following Him really does mean giving up on living for yourself and their own culture that you've developed around your life and starting to live for God and His glory and His purposes in the world and in your own life. Now, of course, that is a huge decision to take. But if God really is God then it is foolish to try and get rid of Him and go back to the safe life that you want to carve out for yourself. The truth is, your life isn't safe. There's no such thing as a safe life, not in a universe ruled by this God. You either know God as king in this life, or you face Him as judge in the next life, but there is no such thing as a safe life. So, don't bury your head in the sand like the Philistines did and just get on with business as usual. Once you see the living God in action, 
there is no turning back. So that's how the Philistines tried to handle God. They wanted to control God, but they couldn't do that. So they tried to appease Him, but they went the wrong way about that. Then they tested Him until He proved to them that He was real. But even then, they still wanted to get rid of Him. It's a bit like the rich man and Lazarus story, you remember? Where it says, oh, if, if you would just send Abraham back to tell my brothers, you know, that God's real, then they'll believe. No way. They wouldn't believe even if someone rose from the dead. Now, at the end of this passage, the ark comes back to Israel. And you might expect, of course, from verse 17 onwards, that they would treat him with the glory that he deserved. Let's remember it had been a very dark day in Israel when the ark had been lost in battle seven months earlier. People were saying, the glory has departed. You would expect when the people saw the ark returning that they would have pulled out all the stops and shown God all the honor that He was worthy of. But that is not what happened when you read between the lines here. The Israelites could not handle God any more than the Philistines. They treated the return of the ark with huge carelessness and complacency. That's what we need to see here. Verse 13 says, the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat. They lifted their eyes and saw the ark, and they rejoiced, all of which sounds good. But the devil is in the detail. Verse 14 says, they split up the wood of the ark and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, here was the problem. This is what Tim Chester writes in his commentary. He says, the people of Beth Shemesh did three things wrong. Firstly, they sacrificed cows when they should have sacrificed bulls, according to Leviticus. Secondly, they paraded the ark, placing it on a large rock for all to see when they should have covered it up. And finally, and decisively, they looked inside the ark. That's why we have this very strange verse 19. It says, God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon or they looked inside the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 of them. In other words, these Levites, these trained priests, did not follow the rules for handling the ark of God that they had been brought up with. They decided to celebrate God's return their way rather than God's way. They treated God lightly. Offering a cow was a lesser thing than offering a bull, and they knew it. They'd known this for years. And of course, the cows were just handy. They didn't have to make any effort or go to any expense to go and find a bull. They were careless with God, and God struck 70 men down. A lot of death here. And we're meant to say that is shocking. And that's what leads to this key verse that sums up the whole of these passages in 1 Samuel. I wish I could show you this on a screen. It's, it's what they call a chiastic structure. The very middle verse of 5, 6, and 7 is this verse here, verse 20 of chapter 6, which sums up the whole thing. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? That's the question. Who is able to stand before Him? 
And here's the bottom line. The complacency of the Israelites led to stalemate between them and God for years. If you look into chapter 7 now in verse 2, it says, from that day the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim. So, even Israel wanted to get rid of the ark. It was too dangerous. Went to Kiriath-Jerim. A long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented before the Lord. So, Israel could not move forward. They did not know anything of God's power and might for 20 years because they were complacent in their worship. And exactly the same thing can happen to us today. Whole churches can come to a standstill for years, seeing no fruit, no growth, no power in their gospel witness. Worship just goes on as usual, of course. But why no power? Because they're complacent about the glory and holiness of God. Where worship is casual, where worship is half-hearted, where worship is, will I come this morning or not? where we go through the motions as a church, when we're only interested in God if He gets us out of scrapes or does something wow for us, when we fail to tremble before Him, then we reach a stalemate and we are removed from any blessing. By contrast, the Christians who make progress. The churches that become a mighty army are those Christians and churches who learn how to tremble before the Lord, give Him the glory He deserves, living holy, set-apart lives in this dark generation. Brothers and sisters, I speak to myself here. We need to rediscover the holiness and the glory of God and learn to tremble before Him again. He is a God of limitless power and might and glory. He is not to be trifled with. Let's not confuse His kindness and His grace and mercy to us with the fact that He's a soft touch. He is not a soft touch. We need to relearn a godly fear in a generation that trivializes almost everything that it touches. We live in the most ge trivial generation there has ever been. And the great Scottish minister, Robert Murray McShane, said, a holy minister, a holy man, is an awesome weapon in the hands of God. Holiness. Of course, the same is true for churches. The churches who see the gospel flourish are those churches that first stand in awe of God. They're not first thinking, well, how can I extend this gospel? They're first thinking, this God is beyond me. I tremble at His Word. That's why I'm going. Isaiah 66, verse 2, this is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in heart and trembles at my word. And when you read about great revivals in the past, like the Hebridean revival in the late 1940s, when God moved His hand mightily across a whole culture, men and women were saved. Church services were going on till beyond midnight. People were queuing at the door of churches. Unthinkable today. Why is that unthinkable today? Well, the first thing that happened when the people prayed, Lord, we need you to move, was the people became almost agonizingly aware of the holiness of God. That was the start of revival. Agonizingly aware of the holiness of God. You can read the stories yourselves. There was a famous scene when Duncan Campbell, the great revival evangelist, was trying to get up into the pulpit. 
as meetings were continuing till beyond midnight. Such was the hunger for God. But Duncan Campbell struggled to get into the pulpit because there was a body. If you could imagine these steps here, there was a body lying prostrate over the steps that Duncan Campbell had to get past, get up to the pulpit. The body was a, a girl, uh, an Aberdeen University student, 21 years old, and she wouldn't let Duncan get to the pulpit because she was crying out, is there any mercy for me? Is there any mercy for me? Nobody asked that question today. Mercy? Why don't we need mercy? God owes me. Why is God not being nicer in my life? It doesn't matter that I'm treating him with contempt for 99.9% .9 of my life. And when you realize that actually, even on one of your better days, you're treating God with contempt, and then you see the holiness of God for what it is, that's when you start to rephrase your questions toward God and say, is there any mercy for me? Why does He not consume me right now? When I've done stuff much worse than looking in the Ark of the Covenant. God can't be controlled. He can't be appeased. We shouldn't try and test Him. We certainly shouldn't treat Him with contempt and complacency. What we need to do, if we're going to see gospel power in this church for years to come, this is where it starts. We need to learn to tremble again before the King of glory. Because as Hebrews 12 says, our God is a consuming fire. And if we learn to tremble again, and we've got a long journey to go, then He may well come and do glorious things among us again. I think that's the challenge of this passage. But you take it home and think about it yourself. I'm going to leave you with a quote this morning. Psalm 96, verse 9. Worship the Lord. How? Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him, all the earth. That's worship. And anything less is just playing with God. And we know what happens when we play with God. Let's take a moment of quiet, and I'll pray, and then we'll sing. Father, um, you know I didn't really want to preach this passage this morning. It's not a crowd pleaser, but I pray that it is a God pleaser. And I pray that you would work in each of our hearts, mine included, that we might analyze our lives to see where we are treating you trivially when there are other things in our lives that we love more than you, when we try and use you for our own purposes and then put you back in a box again when you've done what we want you to do. Or even more, get frustrated when you don't do what we ask you to do. 
Father, help us to move away from being a people who use God until we become a people who God uses. Help us to serve you with all our hearts. But may our service be fueled by a holy, fearful awe of who you are, Lord God Almighty, and what you have done in sending your glorious Son to be clothed in our filth so that you could clothe us in your beauty. Help us to be so in awe of a God like that, that that's why we move, that's why we sing, that's why we go, that's why we pray. Teach us to tremble before you and know you moving powerfully in our lives, in our families, in our church, and in this nation again. We pray this for your glory. Amen. Amen. We're going to close by singing the song, um, Be Still for the Presence of the Lord, the Holy One is Here. If you have any questions about today, I'll be around. Um, Others will be around as well. Coffee in Cafe One. And let's uh, sanctify this place with our conversation this morning as we think about our holy God. We'll stand and sing together. Thanks for being here. God bless you.